Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I am close, so close to cracking the German code. My machine has almost worked out their polyalphabetic substitution cipher. Uh, look, I figured out most of this transmission. H blank, PP blank, space, B blank, RTHD blank blank. Oh, happy birthday. Uh, thanks, but it's not my birthday. I don't know where you got that idea. Not you. I meant... Look, I don't have time to talk about other people's birthdays. The end of the war is at stake. Oh, I just got another letter. H-A-P-P blank space B blank R-T-H-D-A blank. Happy birthday. Could you stop saying that? Can't you see? I'm trying to concentrate on the greatest job of my life. Cryptology takes 100% concentration. I can't have somebody standing there saying stupid things. I'm sorry. This is probably some sort of master German attack plan code named Hapo Borthdag. Hapo Borthdag. Hapo What do you think that means? I've given up trying to tell you. Who's that guy who works down the hall? Toucan or? <laughs> Turing. Yes, that guy. Bring him in. I hear he's good with numbers and code and stuff. Not as good as me, but sometimes a fresh pair of eyes, you know? I bet anything that would help. Meanwhile, here's a whole show about that guy. And now he's successfully adapted Turing's work to give him an edge at charades. Colin McEnroe. We're talking now to Barry Cooper, a professor of mathematical logic at the University of Leeds. He's also the co-editor of Alan Turing, his work and impact. He is one of the leading experts anywhere about Alan Turing. Barry Cooper, I want to begin with what you have sometimes referred to as the Alan Who problem. There's a Doctor Who uh, we all know about, but really until quite recently... One of the responses that someone like you would encounter when bringing up Alan Turing was Alan who? And that seems kind of impossible now in the climate of this new movie and the amount of lionization of Turing that's maybe gone on over the last 12 months or so. But for a long time, very few people knew who this man was, correct? Yeah, this is right. I mean, I've lived with uh, Turing and his legacy for many years now, but uh, it's only it's only in recent years. It's quite amazing, actually, the uh, the kind of change in in the knowledge of Turing now. I mean, even even just before the Turing centenary, you know, one would go to talk to uh, people at Manchester University, you know, and say, you know, what's happening? And they, they would have no knowledge of who Turing was. It was uh, quite depressing, really. <laughs> you, you've said that when you arrived at Manchester University in 1968, there was essentially no sign that anyone named Alan Turing had lived, worked and died there. I mean, no, no blue plaques or, any, or anything like that. And uh, I mean, all there was was uh, Robin Gandhi, his only uh, research student. And uh, at one point during the year I was there, Robin Gandhi started to explain um, morphogenesis and, and uh, Fibonacci sequences in, in sunflowers and so on. And I was gobsmacked. I had no idea that Turing ever did anything like that. And I didn't really know anything about Turing as a person. I just did his mathematics. 
Uh, we're going to come to, in, in just a second, Turing, A, as a person, and B, as a theorist. I mean, it really is the case that in the more that we focus on his world, role during World War II, the more we, we lose track of the gigantic legacy that Turing has given us that is only tangentially related to the work in World War II. But let's just stay on this for one second, Barry Cooper. Um, the thing that I found really remarkable was that, I mean, here's this man who, if you if you buy into this, he ended he helped end World War II two years early, saved 14 million lives. It was Christmas of last year that he was finally granted a pardon for... Yeah, it's just an indication of how things have changed, that um, maybe only a year or two uh, earlier than that, the government was saying that um, this couldn't be done, that one, one couldn't give a pardon because it was the law as it was at the time and he pleaded guilty and that, that, was, uh, that was it. It was only as a result, I think, of Lord Sharkey's private members bill in the House of Lords that really nudged uh, the powers that be into recognising that the time had come. They may have seen the imitation game movie on on the, on the horizon, and uh, they, they may have realised uh, that it would have been rather embarrassing if uh, if the movie did extremely well and made Turing famous around the world, and there was still this stain on his character uh, on the on the record. We should make it clear, although it become it will become abundantly clear to people when they see the imitation game, uh, what it was that uh, he had to be pardoned for. The charge, I think, was gross indecency. It dates back to the not all that distant time when it was yes. essentially against the law to be a homosexual in Britain. This was the terminology of the time. Of course, now we just say it was um, being gay, which was the indecency. And uh, nowadays one would uh, recognize this as a part of uh, individuality, that uh, you know, we have freedom of the individual. And as long as nobody is uh, a trouble to anybody else, then uh, this, is, this is fine. People can uh, express themselves as, as they want and form relationships uh, as they like, and and this is uh, this is what Turing was uh, was uh, if you like uh, abused by the law for, which uh, it's quite extraordinary and uh, disgraceful in a sense. Although one has to understand the history, even more thoroughly disgraceful that in order to avoid prison, he had to agree to estrogen in- injections, which yeah. gave him breasts. Uh... In, in some ways, that was a more dramatic invasion of of his life than the prison might have been. I mean, obviously, he wanted to get on with his work and he, he didn't want to uh, be distracted by being out of uh, academia for uh, a period. So uh, so he did agree to this. Of course, as we now know, invasion with hormone treatments and so on is an extremely dramatic thing and can have uh, mental as well as physical uh, outcomes. Well, let's spend a little bit of time on Bletchley Park. Elsewhere in this program, you'll hear a conversation uh, with a woman aged 90 who was uh, working for naval intelligence at Bletchley Park and had the chance at least to see Turing pass by on his bicycle. And uh, certainly people are going to learn an awful lot, maybe as much as they want to know about uh, Bletchley Park and the incredible work that was done there. But from your perspective as a mathematician, it might be uh, interesting to talk a little bit about this. You know, the most remarkable thing that I've read about about Turing at Bletchley Park, and you can either set me straight about this or uh, confirm it, was that the machine that he designed, sometimes called the bomb, do you say bomb or bomba? How do you pronounce that last uh, name? Bomba is, is, is used by some people, although some other people say bomb because it means, in a sense, bomb, uh, I think. so. Okay. Although there's, some, uh, there's a rumor that, uh, that the Polish uh, team that originally built the prototype, they were encountered an ice cream called a bomber and for some reason 
because one of them was eating her ice cream when he thought of the idea. It's all very apocryphal, of course. I, I don't, <laughs> don't know how much we believe. I think it was I was reading something by Martin Davis, who said that as we go along here with Barry Cooper, we're, we're going to talk quite a bit about you know, Turing's subsequent legacy because everything that he thought about before World War II and after World War II is probably more mind-boggling than what he did during World War II. But I think Martin Davis wrote that these machines... He would design these machines, and then they would be built, and they would work with a relative, yes. <laughs> relatively little tweaking. <laughs> I mean, am I correct in thinking that's an insane thing and that that's, that's an amazing thing by itself, that he would write out a design and then the machine would be built to his specifications yeah, and it would this work? Was, this was really cutting edge. Although, as, as I mentioned, the, the, the Polish ma- three Polish mathematicians that uh, were responsible for a, a kind of toy version, as it were, of, of what, uh, what materialized at Bletchley Park. But the, these guys, yeah, they, they were really at the uh, the frontier of, of what uh, what could be done. And uh, by the end of the war, you know, the uh, computing machinery that was available was was absolutely, you know, I mean, it, it had many times increased in power and uh, ingenuity over that period. And uh, of course, at the same time, the the same sort of development was going on in the United States by then. And uh, and, and Turing himself, of course, travelled between the United States and Britain, uh, you know, a few times. And there were there was there was interaction across the Atlantic on this. One of the things that I'm confronted with whenever I try to read about somebody like Turing is there are people who understand maths and there are people who don't understand maths, and I'm in the Uh, latter category. But it is clear that the work that he was doing prior to World War II, and he he goes to Princeton for a while. He's there at the same time as Kurt Gödel, and I think Newman is there. There's this incredible assortment of just brilliant mathematical minds uh, there at Princeton. But even before that, Turing is talking about something that's sometimes described as universality. Can you help us understand the the mathematical work that he did, at least how it relates to what he wound up doing world, during World War II? I should say that Sir Kurt Gödel was a big influence on Turing, and Turing and Gödel had, had high regard for each other. But it was one of the sad things that when when uh, when Turing went to Princeton, actually Gödel was away, and uh, and I, I I don't think they ever met, mm. uh, and. Uh, but there were other other grand figures of the well uh, Einstein. The I think Einstein country. might have been there. And, at the and time. Uh, von Neumann as well. Yeah. John von Neumann was 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 around as well, and that, they did meet, I think. But I'm not sure whether Turing ever met Einstein. There were a lot of people that were kind of away at that right. time when he was there. Although Alonzo Church, his supervisor, was uh, very much there and uh, was a big influence, of course, on Turing's early work. While we're lingering on Princeton, correct me if I'm wrong about this, because the academic structure of, of British academic life is different from uh, American academic life, I think, didn't Turing have to be a sort of essentially a doctoral candidate there? Because yeah, that, that's right. I guess that was part of a kind of device for enabling his, his visits under the right conditions. And uh, yeah, it wasn't that uh, necessary to, to, to do a doctorate in those days. Uh, but uh, but he, he did one with, with uh, Church and uh, under, under his instruction. And uh, the work he did was amazing. And it was very much influenced by Church, of course. So heading in there, Turing was, I mean, some people have said Turing was really really trying to understand something fundamental about reality and about mathematics and that that had some implications for what happened at Bletchley Park. Is there a way in layman's terms that you can describe that, the, the thing that he was thinking about? This mention of universality is uh, that you made just now, that, that's very important. Sometimes people say, what was Turing's biggest uh, contribution? And I say, well, actually, the biggest contribution was this kind of 
fundamental approach to problems of computability, which was kind of imported in different forms into many different uh, disciplines. And so his contribution, you know, to, to artificial intelligence uh, and the emergence of form in nature and computer science uh, and and so on, all, all these all these ideas, they, there is a kind of coherence to this kind of methodology of investigating the way the world computes in it, in a sense, and the role of algorithms in our world. That whole approach has had a huge impact on, on the, the modern age and, and many of the things that Turing found puzzling and thought about at the time are still with us now. There's still things we don't understand and we're still influenced by the way Turing approached these problems to, to some extent and uh, sometimes controversially like with the Turing test but Turing is still a, a, an extremely important character to us uh, in, in our research nowadays. Uh, we're talking to S. Barry Cooper, Professor of Mathematical Logic at the University of Leeds, the co-editor of Alan Turing, his work and impact. Uh, he's joining us today from the studio at BBC Radio Leeds. All right, so I'll sort of cough this out in the way that my puny mind has, has absorbed it, and then you can help me understand it better. It seems as though this question of universality is a question of could a computer and a computer really I, I guess if you look at the history of mathematics a computer could be a person with a pencil or it could be these machines that started to be built maybe around the time of, of Babbage and, and and Lovelace could it do any computation that could be done is that the universality there's a lot of misunderstanding of the kind of uh, what universality really is and it is kind of gets mixed up with the idea of programmability mm -hmm. and uh, and they are they they are very very connected and i i guess uh, Babbage uh, and, and Lovelace back in in the previous century, they, they um, in the nineteenth century, they they had a programmable machine, and and it's uh, it was capable of being universal because of it was so programmable. But the actual universal machine was what Turing actually introduced in his paper in nineteen thirty six, and that, and the universality is it, it does as you say it, it enables the machine the computer to compute like any other computer. So we're, we're used to having like, uh, you know, Macs and, and uh, IBM machines and, uh, and so on. And, and we can simulate, one machine can simulate the other with a little bit of correctly designed um, software. We don't have to change the hardware now. So, so if you go back in, you know, previous centuries, if you wanted a particular job done, you, you had to modify the hardware in some way. You had to, even in modern times, you had to redo the wiring or, or come up with some kind of cleverly punched card that you you put in. But now our machine nowadays, the, there's no distinction uh, logically between the. Um, data that we compute on and the uh, data that contains the program. And so e even remotely, you know, at Microsoft or whatever can update our software without us even knowing it's happening. And all that goes back to the universality that, that Turing um, was looking at in, in the 1930s. If uh, Turing were to look at the state of computing today, if I were to open my laptop and uh, show him what, it could be, what could be done, obviously I don't think there's much in his work that really anticipates the Internet itself. How no, although, although he was interested in uh, connectivity, mm -hmm. uh, there were various signs of you know, this kind of interest. He, he was particularly interested in kind of human computer uh, interactivity. But you can also see the germs of computer-computer inter interactivity as well. But you're right that uh, if you go on the web, you will find that people will credit Turing with, you know, uh, smartphones and the internet. <laughs> and, 
And that this, is, this is getting a little bit carried away, although, you know, you can see signs in, in his thinking. My guess, Barry Cooper, is that Turing would be surprised at how small things were. That's oh, just... definitely. I mean, that is one thing that I, I think he he would not have been able to envisage. You know, I, I mean, the uh, the size of the machines to do, uh, you know, a fraction of what our, uh, our smartphone can do. Seeing beyond that, you know, even even a Turing might have had difficulty doing. I think this brings us to the kind of uh, the engineering side of of computing. There's always been this kind of schism between the theorists and and the engineers, and and uh, I, I think in some senses Turing kind of. Uh, it embodied a kind of um, coming together of these two sides. As well as being a, the- a theorist by origin, he, d- he did actually uh, get involved in the actual uh, building of machines and the kind of practical problems and so on. And uh, he-, he got on well with, you know, Tommy Flowers, who-, who built the Colossus at Bletchley Park and was a post office engineer. It said that actually Turing and Tommy Flowers got on very well together. And, and uh, you know, that- that's kind of a-, a signifier of that's what's happened happening in the modern times, I think. There's a more coming together of people who are actually practically involved in uh, the way the world computes and, and the people who are kind of thinking about the ideas and the underlying logic and so on. Uh, we're talking to S. Barry Cooper. Uh, let's take a little break. Uh, we'll come back. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about World War II, and then we'll also talk about the period after World War II. There was, tragically, an all-too-short period after World War II. This story ends in the middle of 1954 with Turing's death. But let's talk about World War II and uh, about some of the other legacies of this amazing man. We'll be back after this. This is a song for We are back with S. Barry Cooper. He is a professor of mathematical logic at the University of Leeds. He's the co-editor of Alan Turing, his work and impact. He has been a champion for a long time uh, of the legacy of Alan Turing and helped spearhead what was called ATY, the Alan Turing Year, which was, I believe, 2012. Uh, That was the centenary uh, of of Turing's birth. Barry Cooper, let's go now to Bletchley Park and, and World War II. This story is being told uh, right now in this movie, which many people have not yet seen, The Imitation Game. First of all, you have seen The Imitation Game. Um, How good a job does it do of capturing the story that you know? Let's look at what it's trying to capture as as I see it. Graham Moore, um, the the scriptwriter, spends a lot of time with with the Turing story. He he describes in interviews how um, at school Turing became iconic to him as a kind of geekish not not terribly uh, socially integrated individual. I think what what Moore is is really interested in is who Turing was, and his engagement with his ideas. He's modified details of the history, and this gives some people problems who are kind of very much um, attached to uh, giving a, a particularly accurate account of the detail. What I see is that the the movie is absolutely magnificent in bringing across who Turing was psychologically and, in a sense, uh, projecting Turing's thinking into dramatic action. 
and uh, there's, there's very clever things done in the movie and, and I, I'm, I'm full of admiration. I, I do love the movie. There are some people that say, well, modulo a little bit of artistic license, that the movie's great. And uh, I think that's that's kind of nice that, that there are people very much in, engaged with the detail that can live with the fact that certain things have been changed. And um, not not everybody, uh, not all the characters are there. You know, there's no Tommy Flowers there, for instance, although Tommy Flowers is important after the period that Turing uh, was at Bletchley Park. But uh, so it is a, a magnificent film, I think, and, and everybody should see it. But if you, if you are actually particularly knowledgeable about the details of the history, you might have a you might have a little difficulty uh, at first getting getting used to the um, methodology of of the movie makers. I, I think they're brilliant, you know. I, I, and and of course, Morton Tildum, the director, he kind of identifies the project as. Um, um, showing how somebody who's different can achieve great things and be important to other people who um, who also think different in the world today. Since the movie does focus on Turing as a person, I'm fascinated by the question of how to understand him now. And it's, I think it's difficult. He was a homosexual at a time when it was very dangerous to be a homosexual, so one had to be uh, secretive uh, about that. He had a terrible speech impediment, which I, I think was frustrating to him and, and, and made it difficult for him uh, in, in some kinds of conversational uh, situations. He was working at that time in a, under, a, under very secretive conditions. But I think even fact Factoring for all that, he does seem to have been something of an odd duck. His personal habits were still, were sometimes quite strange. Uh, his behaviors were a little bit odd. And I wonder what you think about him now. Is he simply the genius outsider, the quintessential paradigmatic outsider genius whose mind is operating in, in such a way as to maybe even slightly interfere with normal human behavior? Or today would we place him somewhere on the autism Asperger's uh, spectrum? I'm glad you mentioned that because um, I believe in the States now Asperger's isn't actually an existing condition. (laughs) But it's a useful shorthand for a particular kind of abstraction. You know, you can locate all sorts of people like Einstein and and Turing and Darwin, you know, on, on, on what we call the spectrum. Now, one doesn't want to pigeonhole people. They're all individuals, you know, just just like so-called neurotypicals are all individuals. So, you know, same with uh, people who may be on the on the so-called spectrum. But Alan Turing was um, uh, was very much involved with the abstraction, very much involved with his own ideas, very difficult to convince, you know, uh, to do something that wasn't consistent with what he thought was was right. This is very typical of, of uh, great scientists and, and also people who are creative in, in other areas. And uh, he means a lot to many different people. There are different communities have different relationships to, to Turing. And iconic, you know, he has an iconic role for, for many people. He, he's iconic for many people in the gay community. I mean, we, we know that historically many people in, uh, in, in the gay community have, um, have suffered and, and Turing's history is, is, means a lot to those uh, people. But I think the Asperger's, if you like, there are many kids now at school, for instance, who, who are kind of geekish. And, and, and nowadays, this is very, very common because um, the information age that we have involves many young people in computer science and so on. 
they don't always find it easy to get on at school, you know, because they have to work out how to interact with people. And there's a beautiful moment in the movie. I, I don't want to give a spoiler, but there's a beautiful moment where Alan gives uh, apples to his team, you know. Uh, perhaps I shouldn't say more about that, but it, it's kind of an indication of how he has to... Uh, work out how you behave with people if you want them to like you. And uh, at school, it's very difficult and it gets better. It gets better as people go on. But I, I got a letter from a mother of um, someone who was bullied at school uh, fairly mercilessly. And she was bullied at school as well. And she said, she said I'm just writing this, but I, I just wanted to say this, that I'm so happy that um, there are now people championing people who think different and, and, and are... Um, a, a little bit kind of isolated from from the norms of society, and and I, I think that's great that in in this in this way that the oddness of Turing combined with his achievement, it makes him iconic for um, you know kids at school and uh, and people who have memories of uh, bad experiences uh, when they were young. Yeah, he he does seem to have been that kind of person. I was struck by accounts of Turing. Um, he was uh, he liked to, to bicycle and sometimes would bicycle yeah. home from something <laughs> in the pouring rain at two o'clock yeah. in the morning and people would be trying to give him a ride you know his hosts might yeah. be saying let us drive you home yeah. and he wouldn't even understand yeah. the offer like why wouldn't i ride my bicycle home there's a lot of rationality yeah i i mean for instance the the famous wearing of a gas mask cycling along in in uh, to counteract his uh, hay fever and, and uh, his chaining of his mug to the radiator at bletchley park mm. <laughs> i mean because yes. uh, he was afraid that somebody was going to take his mug and you know he wouldn't see it so, I, I mean his burying of um, uh, silver silver coins in a field and then never being able to find them again. It's, uh, there's all sorts of wonderful mm. stories about... Oh, I should say that... Um, I don't know if anybody's um, picked up the um, biography that Turing's mother wrote of, of him. And now it's been republished by Cambridge University Press. And in the back of it, there's a memoir by um, Alan's brother, John, who he didn't get on particularly well with. And it's extremely amusing. You can tell us that there wasn't a lot of uh, love between uh, Alan and, and John, but it is very amusing to hear John uh, describe, you know, the scruffiness and the untidiness and and uh, and so on of Alan as as a as a schoolboy. And uh, you, you can see his reports, his school reports. Of course, it's very it's very heartening for those who are, those of us who've had uh, bad school reports to uh, see Alan Turing, so then you know 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 what he achieved after that. Uh, it'll hearten you to know that I'm actually holding that particular book in my hand right now. And I think right. I think his yes. brother is quite unkind about certain things. I think rather unkind about this, about yes. Joan in particular, the woman to whom he was engaged. Right. And, and he his brother kind of positions himself as a little bit more of a, a playboy who would bring home all these attractive girls and... And Joan wasn't. Yeah, there are members of the Turing family who are not very happy with that particular memoir. And um, I won't say any more about that. But um, there is a slight slight edge to it. There's a slight bitterness. That, But I, I think one reads it now as a historical document. And, and one knows that, um, you know, John Turing was John Turing uh, as he was in history, and he didn't get on with Alan especially. Also, he was he was uh, he, he certainly showed signs of homophobia, which uh, mm -hmm. which we now put in context as part of the history. So I think it's a, it's a historical document. It's still very readable and very uh, very amusing in in parts. Yes. Although you know you do have to adjust to that kind of edge to the writing. Yeah. 
We're talking to S. Barry Cooper, professor of mathematical logic at the University of Leeds. He's the co-editor of Alan Turing, his work and impact. He's joining us today from studio at BBC Radio Leeds. You know, you talked about how Turing speaks to different communities and different communities cherish and curate different parts of Alan Turing. And and really, if, you, if you're just sort of reading around over the last four or five years, particularly prior to the release of this movie, you're... I think as likely, if not more likely, to see references to him in connection with artificial intelligence, that the people who write and think about artificial intelligence now include him, certainly, as somebody who was interested in that question, who had uh, definitive views about that question. And obviously, as you referenced earlier, uh, Barry Cooper, the Turing test has now become a thing, as we say. It's become this way of talking about whether or not artificial intelligence can exist on a parallel with, with human consciousness. Can you tell me how you see Turing's contribution to that whole conversation. You'll know, of course, that um, Alan was um, dumped on foster parents with his brother John uh, and that his parents were off in, uh, you know, helping to run the empire in India, as it were. You know, and also, you know, he had an uncomfortable time at school at times. So he had to develop his own identity. He had to think about who he was. And and, um, I think this plays into a lot of his um, uh, later work, and in particular, the the artificial intelligence. In a sense, he's got himself as a kind of uh, laboratory, if you like, of uh, how the mind works. And and his his thinking about um, how the mind works was, um, was from different directions. For instance, he did it mathematically. He had a he had a version of the um, of neural nets uh, right in the early days. So that that was a mathematical model. But his real contribution that uh, people know about it is the Turing test. And I think people misunderstand the Turing test. You know, one sees a lot about. Um, one sees a lot of dissatisfaction with the vagueness of it uh, and the the kind of uncertainty about whether you've identified intelligence or not but if you read his paper on it you you see that he this this was the whole thing that he was trying to address was the fact that it was difficult to actually say something sensible about intelligence now as time went on people uh, applied iq tests and so on They, they wanted to make it algorithmic but i think in the turing test Turing is recognising the fact that um, the human mind may transcend the algorithmic and that in telling whether we have intelligence or not or, or that a machine is intelligent or not, it may not, uh, may not be within the scope of algorithms to actually carry out that kind of um, identification. So when people say, well, let's make the Turing test more precise, you know, here's a new version, they're kind of reducing it to the algorithmic and uh, Turing's essential involvement of the human uh, involvement in, in the Turing test is, is getting lost. And, uh, and in a sense, that's, that is a sign of kind of misunderstanding of, of Turing's thinking on this problem. I'm not um, sure we've we've sort of even said in layman's terms uh, what the Turing test is. The Turing test, the way that the yes, common person understands right. it, somebody like me, is can a computer fool an objective observer into thinking that the yes. computer is not a computer, that it is a human? And, and the point is, of course, that behind a screen, you've got um, a human and a machine. And they're, in a sense, competing to be identified as the human. The, the human has to be truthful, of course, but the machine can do anything it likes to convince the, uh, the tester 
that the machine is is human. Now, uh, the judge, who's um, uh, these, these are hidden by the screen, but in front of the screen, there's the the judge, and the judge is human as well, and that's no accident, I think. Uh, Turing is recognizing, I think, that the benchmark, whether we like it or not, is 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 the human, as far as intelligence goes, and that if we want to give the best chance of uh, coming to a sensible judgment, a sensible identification of which one is human, then ask a human to do it. Of course, nowadays we're aware of the fact that there are many things that the machine can do better than the human. But this wide-ranging intelligence, this kind of adaptability, this kind of ability to deal with open environments uh, intelligently, this is still the prerogative of the human human thinking. Artificial intelligence now has kind of identified what it can do, and it can it can do uh, amazing things within particularly well-defined uh, contexts. Like it can, you can have a robot that roams, roams around your house, clearing up and switching things on and off, and looking after things generally. But more more difficult. Um, application you know writing the works of shakespeare for instance you know we're, we're not we're not quite at that level yet with our machines and maybe never will be which is implicit in some of turing's later thinking as barry cooper uh, it's been a great uh, uh, opportunity and an honor to talk to you uh, one last question and that that is this all right so here we have this man and his his mathematical work is kind of interrupted a bit by the call of duty to his nation during World War II, and he does this other kind of remarkable thing that's connected to his work. Then his life is cut short tragically. He dies at the age of 54, probably by his own hand, although I guess that's a little bit disputed. I wonder if we quite appreciate where he ranks in the world's uh, world of thinkers. When you look at how much of his thinking kind of sprawls out into other areas and really crosses out of mathematics into philosophy and into the other sciences. I mean, I think there's a case to be made that he's a more gigantic figure than than we had easily realized, that some of that was sort of tarnished by the arrest and the way in which he really couldn't be brought to the forefront of, of, of thinkers of his age. I mean, you know, he's probably not up there with Newton and Einstein, but I, I wonder how high in the in the world of influential thinkers you rank Alan Turing. The key thing is the extent to which he changed the world we live in, and or he was part of a process that changed the, the world that we live in and, and was the leading figure, if you like. I think it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, to kind of rank um, scientists or whatever linearly. But, mm -hmm. um, but you know, one has this sense, you know, it's, it's like identifying intelligence, you know, it's kind of a vague... A vague judgment, but I, I think I think Turing probably changed the world. Uh, was responsible for changes in the world that um, were beyond anything that uh, that went say be previously the Industrial Revolution. I suppose you would identify the Newtonian uh, Revolution, the, the Copernican Revolution, mm -hmm. and 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 then I mean Einstein. Well. Einstein was was uh, tremendously important in our kind of understanding of the world that we live in, and I, I think all of these all of these people they kind of they didn't just give us useful science; they gave us um, they changed the way we saw ourselves. I think Turing's job is not yet finished. I think one thing Turing gave us, which we've not yet taken on board, is the limitations of of uh, computing. And it was in that early paper in 1936, the whole point of the paper was showing that uh, 
computers were limited, that um, the incomputability, uh, as we, we call it now, existed. Unsolvable problems, d despite um, the ambitions of David Hilbert and other people in the 19th century, unsolvability of problems was something that we had to live with. We're only now coming to terms with that when there are new par paradigms of uh, computation coming through, which actually use... Um, using physical material in kind of interesting ways. There are people doing um, uh, traffic planning using slime mould, for instance. <laughs> and I, I mean, which is kind of amazing, you know. I mean, that, that intelligence can be got out of uh, material things. And this goes beyond the logic of the desktop or, or the uh, laptop on our, uh, that we use. There's still a paradigm shift, if you like, that uh, is not yet completed which Turing was was kind of responsible for. And uh, I, I think he, he's just a hugely important figure. I don't think science... Uh, I, I think usually we recognise that um, if a certain person hadn't lived, the science would still have carried forward. But uh, we do recognise that actually um, the science is a collective human activity and that people like uh, Einstein or, or Turing or... or Isaac Newton. Scientifically, they were the best of us, and that is why they have this iconic role. I can't imagine a better note to end on. Uh, Barry Cooper, uh, co-editor of Alan Turing, his work in Impact. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. It was great to talk to you. Okay, I've got H-A-P-P -P blank, B-I-R-T-H-D-A blank. It was so obvious this whole time. Why didn't I see it? It's in Portuguese, Hapo Birthdow, which I think you'll find means the goose flies at dawn, which is a Japanese proverb connected to the first day of a person's life. It's what we call happy birthday. Only I could have broken this code. Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Benedict Cumberbatch. The Faith Middleton Show staff is an anagram for only geeks stuck in the 90s still go for ambient relative concepts. What does that mean? On tomorrow's show, the nose meets cereal. And now, back to Colin. In the studio with me is Priscilla Lydia McKenzie. She's got some amazing stories to tell. Alan Turing is very much in people's consciousnesses right now, maybe in a way that he never has been before, although some of us have followed his story for a long time. But uh, your story, Priscilla, goes back further, goes back to the time of the code breakers in Bletchley Park. So maybe you can just begin by telling me how it is that you, a, a young lady at the time, wound up in this place where the code breakers of World War II were working. I, it was my age to do national service. And I had to be interviewed at the labor exchange. And the year that I was called up was supposedly going into industry. And I had a horror. I thought they had all these pictures around the wall of people chopping a finger off because they did something wrong with the machine. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, I'm going to 
do mm. damage to myself because I'm hopeless with machines. Mm. So I went to the labor exchange in trepidation. And after the lady sat in front of me, sh- shifting all kinds of papers, and she said, how would you like to work for the foreign office? And I thought, I'm dreaming. <laughs> really. Uh, so she, uh, I said, I thought that would be very nice. I was waiting for her to say, you know, it was a joke or something. And so I had an appointment and went to the foreign office and had a nice little interview. And they said they understood that I had taken German in school, because mm-hmm. in England that's fairly common. And I said, yes, I had. And so they said that they would um, send me to Bletchley, which I had never heard of. I mean, mm. <laughs> where the heck is Bletchley? And I still don't know what county it's in, but anyway. <laughs> so I was sent to Bedford first because they had to put us in a billet and uh, met my landlady, who's very, very, very nice lady. I was very lucky. Some of them had some horrible people to stay with. Then I went to um, Bletchley. We went from Bedford to Bletchley. It was about half an hour's ride. And um, they took us to... A lot of little huts they were, and told me this is the hut that I would be working in, which I didn't know what I was going to be doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I went there, and there were about a ooh, dozen other girls around my age, and we met, had a little meeting, which was telling us that you couldn't discuss what you were doing there at all, because we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> it made it easy <laughs> not to discuss it, yeah. So, yeah. And then we had this lovely sign on the wall that said, it is better to be silent and thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Mm-hmm. And then there were signs about what you'd be prosecuted if you told anybody what you did, how many years in prison you could have, and all this and, <laughs> and all this sort of thing. So then we um, met the person who we were going to work with, and uh, it turned out that we were recording the movements of, of the German ships. Of course, in German class, we never learned about German ships mm. <laughs> or the words for them. So I should say it was quite interesting because I learned quite a w- technical terms that I never knew, be- knew before. It wasn't just checking where they were leaving. It was what the tides were like, who they were fighting, or all kinds of things like that. And after they had been decoded by the cryptographers, they would be in German, of course, and they would come to us and we would have to pull out parts about what time they left the port, who they were encountered, if the enemy, which was... You know, the British, of course, where they were and all the positions like that. And it was one of those jobs where nobody really knew what the person in the next office was doing. Mm -hmm. The whole idea was that you couldn't know enough that you could, if you did open your mouth, that the things (laughs) would get out. I think it was very difficult in a way because we were civilians and we would be on a train to work and people would make comments about, why aren't these girls in the service, you know? We couldn't tell them. Right. <laughs> we had lots of unpleasantness there because of our age and we weren't in the service. But actually, we were basically working for the naval intelligence, which we didn't know exactly at the time, except there were a lot of wrens in another office that were turning tumblers around all the time and we didn't know what they were doing because nobody supposed to tell anybody else what they <laughs> were doing. It, it's amazing, I think. It it's, seems like a British way of muddling through, it seems to me. And I think the cryptographers are quite a group on their own. They're, they're different people. <laughs> I don't know how to say they're different, but I think they must be very bright, obviously, mm. but they are very unusual, too, quite often. You know, they're quirky. Did, did anyone know the name Alan Turing? Were you aware there was such a person? Oh, yes. Yeah. We'd heard of him. Of course, you know, I was told that I would know him. If I saw him on a bicycle, I'd know who it was. Because he didn't come personally introduce himself to right. me. Um, if he would be riding on a bicycle, 
with a gas mask on. And I said, oh, he was odd. They said but it had a purpose. The gas mask was because he was very allergic to everything, and this stopped him from getting whatever it was through the gas mask. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, but uh, we didn't have any idea of computers. And I assume that this huge thing I used to pass where they were all tumbling these things around was the original computer. It took up a whole wall, yeah. you know. So when you were there at Bletchley Park, people talked about him as this man who'd been through these personal trials and tribulations. Mm -hmm. Did they also talk about him as a genius, too? I mean, did oh, people yes. think he yeah. they all knew that he was a genius. I mean, I think everybody said it, Turing and Flowers and one other, though I can't remember the third one, were really, you know, the ones at the, the, that you sort of were in awe of because they were so beyond every, anything that we could understand. And people must have suspected that he was working on code anyway, right? I mean, what else would a mathematician be doing there? I don't know. Uh, British people, are, I don't know how to describe them. They, <laughs> <laughs> I was one of them. But um, they take things pretty easily, I think. They don't mm. get so shook up as people over here do. Everything's in a crisis mode or something or the next... For nine days, it's the news. You know, how long can you have the same news right. every day? And, so there's a and there's a British reserve too. You don't go poking around. Except during the war, they weren't. They weren't reserved. Was it? Was that because you sort of live for today? I mean, you know. Uh, I think we were maybe used to being, you know, having things happening in our history, and so we don't try to get all shook up about it. You know, and I, I don't know whether that's good or not. I think we have a way of muddling through. I think. But I was wondering also during the war if British reserve started to melt away during the war. Is that because oh, yes. of the urgency of life? And, uh, and... Yes, you, you spoke to people you never spoke to before, I think. You know, mm -hmm. you're always more friendly during a war because you, you need each other more. And uh, I think we had quite some funny times because we all were issued, I can't remember, ours was an Anderson or a Morrison shelter, so we were supposed to go if the air raids were on, you know. Mm -hmm. They all said, well, it wouldn't hurt if a direct hit came. It wouldn't make any difference. It, mm. You know, it saves you from shrapnel. But after running downstairs and getting in this damp thing in, at night for uh, two or three months, we decided, chances are, you know, it's not going to happen. We stayed in our beds. <laughs> <laughs> People learn to live with things. You can't worry every day about whether you're going to make it through the day. At least I don't think so. In my hometown one time, I was getting my hair done, and, and they told us to clear out because there was a speck that there was a bomb in the street. So we all went into the pub across the road mm. and had nice drinks or so, and after a while they said it was all clear. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and my daughter said one time, I think it was my second daughter, that we were in a, a London station, and it was really quite stupid of me. Somebody came up to me and said, would you mind watching my bag while I just go in the store? And I said, fine, because I was sitting there waiting for a train. And it occurred to me afterwards it could have been a bomb, you know, because bomb, yeah. they were, they, you'd leave them in all kinds of odd places, <laughs> you know. When you think about the significance of what happened at Bletchley Park, the kind of work that was done by naval intelligence there, the kind of work that was done by Turing, many people think it was one of the tipping points of the war, breaking the code, knowing so much. Well, that was one thing that, that Churchill was very good at mm -hmm. because he really believed in our ability to do, you know, whatever they were doing. Right. He, he supported them on that. They was definitely good on that. Other than, then there are, there are a lot of burdens that came with that, too. Didn't he allow the bombing of Coventry uh, rather than reveal the fact that they knew the, the bombing was coming? Yeah, it, it's a terrible thing. We had um, a way of, for instance, the Scharnhorst and Gneisenau were in the Baltic, and we knew they were there, but we couldn't do anything because it was fogged in. 
And if we could say we spotted them from a plane, then they could be attacked. Otherwise, we couldn't do anything about it because if they found, they'd know that their code had been broken if we could hit them then. So right. we were big upset about it. Of course, you know, here are these two German battleships sitting in the Baltic and we hadn't stopped them from getting out. <laughs> that, that's such a fascinating thing, too. The tremendous advantage that was derived by breaking the code, yeah. but you couldn't always no. employ the advantage no, without revealing no, that you had broken the code. Because they said, how did we know that, you know? Yeah. There were disadvantages to it, I think. That's one thing about the Germans. They have a terrible thing for keeping records. Mm-hmm. I mean, they keep them all the time on everything. And, and when they changed over to uh, the Japanese war, which we thought was going to go on forever, I remember this wonderful Don that looked like a janitor said he would learn Japanese. He learned it in six weeks. I couldn't understand. How did he understand to read, you know, because you could only get the Japanese code by stealing their, one of their books. You could, they didn't have anything like the Germans. Yes, and uh, Japanese, by the way, a very difficult language. I mean, I've, I know people who've lived in, J- in Japan for 15 years and don't think they speak it all that well. An incredibly difficult thing to do. It's so what I was going to say is obviously at the end of all this, no parade for all of you people who did that kind of stuff. No no ticker tape parade. No, I mean, the, it was no, a long time before anybody could say thank you. No, they do uh, memorize, like I don't know if you saw about the plastic um, poppies that they put around the dry moat of uh, Windsor Castle. Very effective. They're very good at remembering things of, of wartime. I think better than he. We don't take it as a day off. Call it Remembrance Remember, Day. Remembrance Day now, yeah. And I, I think children should be at school. I mean, they think it's a day off from vacation, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's not what it's for. You should remember the people who gave their lives for you. Did you wish that you could tell people when, when it was all over what, what had happened there, what you'd done? Did you... Wish that you weren't under this sort of well, silent order we, of silence. We went on our separate ways. Uh, I could have stayed with the foreign office, and, and I t- said to because one of the girls wasn't too bright on my shift. I didn't think she was too bright anyway. She became a British envoy. She visited me in, oh, in the seventies, I think. And I said to my husband, "See, if I hadn't married you, I might have been a British envoy somewhere." She said, "You were lucky." <laughs> <laughs> well, Priscilla, Lydia, Mackenzie, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I'm so happy that you took the time to have it with me. Well, I was so I said to, I won't be able to think a thing, and I'll probably be quiet, which is not like me. <laughs> no, no, I can tell you that's not your style, and you haven't been quiet at all. I'm, I'm, these are wonderful stories. Thank you so much for sharing them. Good. Black or white. Straight or gay, remember the man who showed us the way, Alan Matheson Turing. Okay, last code, T-H blank S, I-S, T-H blank blank N-D, those is though owned, thus is the und. This is the end!